0: All right, well, welcome to Spark. We are so glad that you are here. And um, has anyone been following the musical Hamilton at all and, like, really can't wait to have tickets and stuff? So Lin-Manuel Miranda was asked, if you could speak to any historical figure at all, ever, in all of history, who would you like to speak with? And he said, Jesus. And then they asked him why, and he said, because I have a lot of questions. <laughs> And I was like, that is so great and true and wonderful. And I also wanted to grab him. I should just tweet him and say, the next best thing to time traveling to see Jesus is to come to Israel. So please, um, I hope you can come with us. It's really an incredible event to walk around um, and be in the same spot and in some cases on the same step where uh, Jesus was and be able to experience what that was like. So I hope you have any questions about that. Come and join us. And if you've been before, like Pastor Kevin said, um, the the tour in spring is going to be a lot of fun with Rabbi Ari, and we're looking forward to just um, hanging out and conversing back and forth. I hope you can join us in the wilderness. All right, so we are in Numbers chapter 5. We've kind of been a little bit jumping through Numbers. Kevin skipped this passage last week, but it's Spark, so we don't skip passages. So we're going back to the hard passage, and we'll grab it. So with all of that introduction, let's pray for me and for us as we read um, the following passages. Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together and to worship you through the study of your word we pray right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit present in this place, we would be drawn closer to you and to one another as we engage with your text, as we wrestle with this um, ancient story, and as we continue to find um, you today alive in our midst. How do we follow you, Jesus? Teach us again today how we might do that together. In your holy name, amen. All right, Numbers chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up. If you don't have your Bible, you can also read along Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 13 is where we're going to start. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is detect undetected since there is no witness against her and she's not been caught in the act, comma... Um, And if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife um, and she is impure or he is jealous and suspects her even though she's not impure... Uh, then he is to take his wife to the priest, and he must t- also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley, flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it because it's a grain offering of jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. And then the priest shall bring her before the Lord, bring her and have her stand before the Lord. And then he'll take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. And after the priest has has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. And then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If... No other man has had sexual relations with you, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband. May this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. And may this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells and your womb miscarries. And then the woman is to say amen and amen. (laughs) Verse 23, the priest is to write those curses on a scroll and wash them off in the bitter water, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. And the priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he's to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and has been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she's made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her abdomen and swell, and her womb will miscarry, and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure, but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and be able to have children. I love, by the way, on this picture how she's happy, but the children, the offspring of this union is not, (laughs) this is not a pleasant experience for this poor woman. All right, the end of Numbers 5. Then this, this then is the law of jealousy. When a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife, the priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to imply this entire law to her. And the husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. The title of our sermon today is, What the... (laughs) What is this doing in our Bible? And why is it here? And... Uh, Yeah, so I was going to call this uh, sermon, What the Sotah, because this woman is called the Sotah, S-O-T-A-H. It is the Hebrew word for the one who has gone astray. And the Sotah actually gets an entire tractate in the Mishnah, in rabbinic writings. There's like a whole, basically like a chapter dedicated to just this subject. It's entitled Sotah. And then we just talk about what we do with a woman who has gone astray. And this is in rabbinic writings that are, you know, not long after the time of Jesus finally sort of more codified and put down a few hundred years after the time of Jesus. Now, when I read this passage and other passages like it, um, it honestly causes me to think of scenes like this. We have found the witch, may we burn her. How do you know she is a witch? She looks like one. Yeah, like Bring her forward. I'm not a witch, I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Well? Well, we did do the nose. <laughs> the nose and the hat. But she is a witch! Yes. We did you dress her up like this? No! 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 Yes. 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 A, bit. Yeah. a bit. A bit. A bit. She has got a wart. <laughs> what makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. Burn <laughs> already! Burn <her! laughs> okay, so... Let's start to unpack the passage a little bit. The reason why that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail is funny is because it's also true. There's been many hundreds of years, millennia of history where women have been brought forward um, to the authorities um, in their communities and made to stand trial for being literate uh, because if you could read, you were presumed to possibly be a witch uh for all sorts of reasons and purposes the Salem witch trials in the 1600s here on our own continent as well and lots of uh unfortunate uh portions of our history have embraced scenes like this that's why it's funny right and like well does she dress like no well we dressed her up that way i mean the whole thing is about how they have themselves de- decided that this is who this woman is in their community um, But when we go to Numbers 5, there are some things to understand. Because the guilty verdict in Numbers 5 requires a miracle, the innocent victim has no reason to fear the water. This is a weird thing. So only if she is guilty and believes in the miracle will she recoil from drinking and confess her guilt. If she's innocent, this reduces the factor of suggestion or of sheer terror leading leading her to falsely confess. In scenarios like the one we just saw, which are frequently visited in medieval Europe and also Salem witch trials and also in the ancient Near East, in places like this, women were often tossed into the water, and if they floated, they were without sin, and if they sank, that was it, they had been sinning. If they could Uh, take a woman, they would burn her at the stake. If she burned, well, she wasn't sinful, and if she didn't burn, then she's a witch. These are horrible ways to find out if someone is sinful or not. What the Bible does as it looks at this process is in in order to determine the woman's guilt, it requires a bit of a miracle. Because I've grown up, and I have a toddler, and the eating of dirt off a tabernacle floor does not make you sick. It might make you like a little bit, I mean, it depends, I guess, about the copious amount of dirt that you might eat. But even people you'll read in the New York Times like, oh, you should let your kid crawl around on the subway floor in New York City because before the age of two, this will just build up their immunity, right? So the the reality is in this particular case, the woman is only guilty if a miracle act of God occurs. So let's just continue to unpack the passage a little bit more. Uh, The process is unique in all of the Bible because it requires a miraculous sign from God in place of judicial practice. So as this woman is brought forward because her husband is jealous um, and he suspects this of her, the ruling is not determined by a man. It's not determined by the priesthood. The ruling of her guilt or innocence can only be be determined by God himself because it would only be after the fact that the community could say, oh, Her abdomen and womb distended and she miscarried and was not able to have children. This isn't going to happen because they take a little bit of dirt. Hold on, women. It's going to be okay. I know you're hearing me like I'm justifying this practice, but um, if they take a little bit of dirt, put it in the water and drink, right? This is part of what we're going to call redemptive movement. Uh, The practice also provides the woman a solution if her husband is unreasonable and and his jealousy is without cause. She's declared by the priest to be innocent, clean, and free of guilt. So this is a redemptive step forward from other practices. When we read Numbers 5, we should at least know and understand that as abhorrent as it sounds to our 21st century ears, and it should, and there's lots of problems with the passage, there's lots of problems with the practice of it, um, it's upsetting to read in Numbers chapter 5. I think we'd all much rather go straight to John three sixteen and just read about how for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But as this is our text and as we believe that the Bible is the very word of God, we at least need to read it in the context that it comes in, which is that this is actually a redemptive step forward. For the woman in this community who is stuck with a jealous husband, who might be raging, who might be frustrated, she's able to say, fine, let's go before the priest. I'll drink that muddy water, and then I get to be declared innocent. And you can imagine 2,000 years ago, a few hundred years ago, 50 years ago, today, a woman who is in a relationship with a man where there is domestic violence or abuse or verbal abuse because this person is jealous, checking text messages, phones, and emails, controlling every movement, that for a woman to be able to say, in our community there is a remedy for your concern. Let's go before the priest. Let's have the priest mitigate this. And when I don't get sick from drinking a little bit of water, when God declares me innocent, it gets forgotten. We get to go back home. So maybe a bit of a redemptive step. If we just start to unpack the passage a little bit, it is the only place in the Bible where we see that judgment comes out of a miraculous curse of God, that God himself has to reach down into this situation and say, yes, she is guilty. Yes, I will fulfill this curse upon her. Yes, she will get sick and not be able to have children. There's also this concept in rabbinic literature that the rabbis talk about throughout the whole of the Bible, an interpretation called measure for measure. That that which is measured to you against you will be measured against you So That's what you measure will be measured against you. For example, um, let's see, uh, when Jacob deceives his his father Isaac because he's blind, Jacob himself gets deceived by his eyes as well by the coat of Joseph. Measure for measure. He was a deceiver by sight, and he himself gets deceived by sight. So the rabbi said, Ah, well, this woman is suspected of misusing her procreative abilities and endowments in her community. Therefore, her punishment will be meted out against those same things. It's measure for measure. Again, This is not, I'm not suggesting that this is the feminist talk for the day. Um, Let's all go to Numbers 5 and reinstitute this in any way. But it is how they interpreted the passage. Now, as we look at this redemptive step forward and we try to explain it to ourselves, we can recognize that we have been doing this type of mansplaining to us or explanation about passages like this since ancient times. This has been happening for millennia, for women in communities, in societal communities, in Egypt, in Sumeria, in Assyria, women being treated as property um, and having to be owned and have authority under the men in their community. Ordeals of this kind were practiced all over the ancient Near East and in England up until 1818. And they're still practiced today amongst Bedouin community, West Africans, south of the Sahara, let's say Saudi Arabia, um, Yemen, places where women are controlled, not permitted to get educated, where they are married off as child brides at age 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, they often involve, these, these ceremonies still today, often involve suffering and injury boiling water, and scalding metal. And it's only if the injuries heal well that the victims proved innocent. So I'm going to burn you, but if you heal well, you're innocent. If you have a scar, well, there you go. You are guilty. Again, God's way seems like a giant step forward in comparison to that practice today that's still going on in communities today where if a woman is suspected of doing these things in many communities, they just take her out and kill her. So as we look backward reading this text from the 21st century position, we feel like this text is very backward and horrible, hence the title. But as we look from that place and from other cultural standpoints forward, we see that God is actually instituting a practice that protects the women in the community. As difficult as that is for us to hear on this side, God has created a way in which the women in that community can find some justice and some peace and a little tiny bit of, um, of hope and a voice. And at least, again, the woman gets to say amen and amen. I mean, she gets that much of the... Right? Yes, I will say amen and amen to that. So in the sota practice the verdict requires a miracle. The injury is not inherent in drinking dirty water. The injury is also unequivocal. It doesn't require a priest to interpret whether that person is healed well or not, right? So unlike that other practice where I can go, well, you know, you still have this little bit of scarring right here, therefore you should still be guilty. In the Numbers 5 passage, that verdict does not rest with a human being. That verdict rests with God alone, Another little bit of understanding is that the rabbis themselves did not implement this practice. And we actually have one possible account of it being instituted one time. So as you look back, we have this text in Numbers 5. It's an uncomfortable text. It has an echo, by the way, back into the golden calf incident with Israel. Do you remember that they had to grind up and they were made to drink? Because it's the test for an unfaithful wife. And Israel was being unfaithful when they committed adultery against God. Remember the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they're immediately like, how about these gods? Um, And so the rabbis understood the practice and understood the meaning of it. It resonated in their community. God very clearly says to the Israelites before they enter the land, if you do what the Canaanites did... And the Canaanites are adulterers and they are child sacrificers. And adultery is mentioned as one of the reasons why the land of Israel is, quote unquote, vomiting out the Canaanites and why it will do the same to Israel if Israel does the same practice. Adultery was a serious offense, it was considered to be against both God and the husband and the man, and it harmed the community at large. So the rabbis understood the practice, but they didn't implement it in the same way. In rabbinic law, the ritual was only used if both the husband and the wife wanted the ritual, if they were interested in restoring their marriage. Either partner could opt out at any time and accept the option of divorce in the second temple period. So the period about, you know, 100, 200, a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus until about 70 AD following the temple, until the second temple was destroyed. It was, it fell out of practice once the second temple period is over. So no one after 70 AD was still looking back at Numbers 5, and it doesn't sound like even during Jesus's time were they doing so. And remember, Jesus has that interesting incident with the woman caught in adultery right? So, and there's interesting dust on the ground, and I don't know, it's kind of fun to think about some of that. So, all of that uh, is present in Jesus's day, but they're not implementing this law. It's not something that they're practicing. However, the reason why they're not implementing it isn't because they view the practice as unfair or biased or Um, cruel to women. It fell out of practice because the rabbis viewed the immorality of Israel so great that everyone was committing adultery, so they just didn't try to police it anymore. And passages like that are found in Hosea and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel where adultery is perceived by the prophets to be so common amongst Israel that it will be one of the reasons why they get exiled and why their immorality is so huge. So, I mean, it's a little bit frustrating to go, oh, yay, but they didn't practice this in Jesus' time, so there's some movement, right? Ladies, men, to be like, "Woohoo!" like at least we didn't have to drink dirt then. And now we go, oh, but it's not because... They knew that drinking dirt for women would be bad. It's because they just thought we were all like that. Okay, so all of that, unpacking a little bit of the passage, I gave you like a couple little bit of nuggets. Like, oh, but this could be how God is doing it. And, well, they didn't really ever implement it. So we should feel better about this. And other cultures were so much worse. So we should feel much better. So am I supposed to feel better now that this passage is in my Bible? And I'm going to say... let's just read part of it again. Her hair is to be undone. She is publicly shamed. So when she comes before the priest, the priest takes her hair down, messes it up, and puts her on notice. Now, she is potentially innocent, and she's having to go through this public shaming, Aviva Zornberg, a Jewish scholar, has written in the book Bewilderment, which is a commentary in the book of Numbers, the soto' stripped of any ascetic qualities. She's placed in the posture of the unbeautiful, the deconstructed. She is undone, disintegrated. She embodies disorder in a way that viscerally affects both herself and those who see her. This practice is deeply shameful. It does not treat women as equals. It does not hold up half of God's creation as having a voice in their community. By the way, there isn't an equal practice if the woman suspects her husband. That's not in number six. I wish. This only applied to women suspected. It didn't, there wasn't an equivalent. You know how like in the English language we only have the word mistress, but there's no male equivalent for that in the English language? Hmm? Yeah, that's not really what that means. I wish. Not really, right? We have a word for a man whose spouse has behaved that way, his wife's behaved that way. Like We have lots of words for him, but it's still that the wife is promiscuous, right? Um, and yeah, it's it's troubling. So am I supposed to feel better? Well, not yet. When we speak about the issue of women in the Bible, many of us grew up in communities and in uh, Christian practice where to talk about women in the Bible was already like a really hot button topic. It was like, don't talk about sexuality, don't talk about politics, and don't talk about women or women's roles. So we're going to be in a church where women, um, you know, bake some cookies, sounds good. Please take care of the children. Thank God for you. That's wonderful. Oh, and also, we're happy to send you on mission. So you're welcome to go teach men over there. Not white male Americans, but over there, men. That's fine. But when you come back from your mission trip to report on it, you can't stand in the pulpit to tell us about it because women aren't allowed to stand up there. So oftentimes I've found that as soon as I start to broach the subject of wanting to talk about women or women in the Bible, I immediately have fear that I'm going to be branded like a scene out of Portlandia um, with the feminist women's bookstore. Okay, sweetie, you got a burned out condenser. Who's sweetie? Well, ma'am, I can, I can fix it. it uh, prob- probably put a couple of new... Sweetie? I have a name, and that name is Candace. All right, ma'am. Well, I'm It's here- not ma'am. It's Candace. And I'm Tony. I'm Brian. I'm Brian, Brian the air conditioner repairman. Okay, Brian, we're going to lend you a book. I want you to read this. And it is a vivid, vivid description of what it's like to be a woman. Which I think is something that you could benefit from. Understanding a woman's journey, which is why I've also brought this book. Shh. Okay. You feel like when you start to talk about women and women's issues, that immediately people are going to be like, oh, you're one of those. You know, do you have the Birkenstocks also? Um, Now we're going to have to sit down and have a conversation. And and now you're going to get really offended every time I use the male pronoun for God or if I call God Father and all of those kinds of things. Like It goes to a really quick extreme where we find ourselves in one of two camps. You're laughing because you feel like it's true, right? You find yourself in one or two camps very quickly where all of a sudden you are either you know, a misogynist and you dislike women and you're totally trying to keep women down or you're ridiculous and you're going to the Lilith Fair all the time and you're um, embracing all sorts of other things. And I I went to, listen, you guys, I went to an all-women's college. I went to an all-women's college. I went to Scripps College in Southern California, uh, part of the Claremont McKenna Consortium of Colleges. I was a political science major and I went there because I did not want men in my dorms I just didn't, oh, I was just like, can I please have a safe place to be? And no offense, men, all the men in this room realize. but college can be a difficult time. And I also wanted to be called on in a classroom. And I knew that statistically that was not going to happen if I was in always mixed gender setting. So, by the way, it's the early 90s. I'm sure things are much better now. It was like 20 years ago. So, you know, it's all fine. Um. I went to Bible study. They had a Bible study for our college group. And I was like, okay, for a college, it's great. I'll go to the Bible study, check it out. This, the college is very small. It's about 500 women. And so I went to the Bible study and I showed up and the smell of um, a non-medicinal use of something was present. And then there were lots of women there who um, had different hygiene practices than I had. And then they uh, had a, also a very different style, but they were really, you know, serious about the Bible, which was great, but that wasn't, a place for me. Because I felt like that was going to be the bookstore, right? Like I had two options. I could either go to a place where I would not be permitted to speak or teach, or if I had the other view, then it was going to be a place where I also didn't feel like the theology was well-suited for me. It was just two extremes, and there wasn't something in between. And I want to suggest that there's another way to approach the subject of women in our Bible. And it's going to be throughout the whole narrative of the Bible. As we look at women and women in the Bible, we can't take one single passage, whether it supports our position for women should only stay in the home, or it supports our position for women can be doing anything. We should never take one single passage or and elevate it over all other passages. We should never look at Numbers 5 and say, see, Bible's patriarchal, and it's abusive, and it's terrible, and who would believe in this terrible Israelite God? And then never, ever read all of the other incredible movements and stories. That is a false equivalency. You just, you simply should not do that when you read the text. We have to read it as a whole, from garden to garden, And for those of you who've been in that Bible study that we provide, um, or those of you that haven't, we read through the whole Bible in five months. We'll be doing it again in January at AME Zion in partnership with Pastor Coloma and AME Zion there, as well as churches around the U.S. And we read or listen or just come to the Bible studies um, through those five months together, trying to understand what it means to look at the Bible from garden to garden, from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason why we start in Genesis, as Spark did four years ago, is because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God creates woman. When he creates, he's created male, he's going to create female. When he creates her, he says, he looks around, the text says that he looks around for someone, a helper suitable for Adam. An ezer Kenegdo In Hebrew, and we talked about this, and you can go back and listen to the Genesis talk, um, Ezra is help. It's the word we use for our God on high. Our God is our help. All of that. Where does my help come from? Kenegdo is the word equal to, like, and adequate for, like, absolutely reflecting. Ezra Kenegdo, it's not about somebody who now the woman's job is to just serve and help. That's not the best translation. And Ezra Kenegdo is someone, a force that is equal to and adequate for in every respect. A help that is equal to and adequate for. A reflection for Adam. And that Ezra connecto is beautiful. And that's how God sets up the world. He sets up the garden with male and female equal. But very quickly after that, in Genesis chapter three, now we have a sneaky snake. Things go south, it's terrible. And we hear this consequence of this sin, and it says, God says to the woman, your desire, your teshukah, will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, this happens as a result of sin. This is not what God created. This is not God's intention for the relationship between male and female. This is how we messed it up. But we start to get glimpses of God trying to bring us back to the garden very quickly. Even entering into the land of Israel, as the Israelites are getting ready to do, isn't entering again into a garden. In Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, this word Teshuka is used once again. And the woman who speaks first who speaks last, who speaks most often, who goes after her man and brings him back. Um, and warrior-type language is used for her, battle-type language is used for her. It's really this beautiful, incredible, unmatched in ancient Near Eastern literature, incredible story of just love, equal love between male and female, and it's all garden imagery. She says, I belong to my beloved and his teshuka is for me. So all of a sudden, in the middle of Song of Songs, we have a reversal of that curse. We start to see that God is trying to show us that, again, it's supposed to be back that way. And even, honestly, at the end of Numbers, we start to see, again, little glimpses. The daughters—do you guys remember these daughters in Numbers chapter 27? The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead—they go through the whole thing—they came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders and the whole assembly at the entrance of And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin, left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses doesn't know what to do because there's no litigation for this. He brings the case before the Lord, and the Lord says to him, what they've said is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance. So at the end of this book, we have a story of women, same words here, being brought forward, standing before and being brought for the priest, brought forward before the Lord, brought forward before these, but they are given an inheritance. And some of the rabbinic commentators, later on particularly Rashi, he looks at this passage and he says, Oh my goodness, this is incredible. Why are they still alive? Aren't all the people in the wilderness supposed to have died and not be able to enter into the land? Ah, he says, and he goes back because this is what. Jewish students and scholars of the text do. He goes back to that passage in Numbers 14 where they are supposed to go into the land and they don't because we are grasshoppers and they're giants and we freak out. And he says, oh, it's only men that committed that sin. The women didn't die in the wilderness. They didn't commit that sin. They were permitted to go into the land. So we have some interpretation that there's redemption, that there's movement, even in the book of Numbers itself, not even standing way far back and going, well, someday we'll start to see, and even in the passage of Numbers 5 itself, we start to see some movement, some redemption. But ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we embrace and live into and live because of the curse-reversing death of Jesus. Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. And when we look at the curse found in Genesis 3, when we look at the consequences that are there, we're like, wow, toil the soil really hard. We all work to make our work life easier. She's going to have pain and childbirth. No, no. Girlfriend, go ahead, get that epidural, right? So we have all these places where we're like, it's fine for you to rail against the consequences of the brokenness of our sin. Husbands and wives, spouses, come together, work those things out. We do all of that to respond to that curse, but somehow the church, when it comes to male-female role, we're like, that's just how God made it. But that's not our narrative. That's not what the Bible is teaching us, because we as Christians believe in the curse reversing death of Jesus. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ has redeemed us from the curse. In 1 Corinthians 7, we even see a bit of a window of redemption of the marriage relationship. The wife does not have authority of her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but yields it to his wife. We There's some mutuality in there in that marriage room. Ephesians 5, the part where it's always like, see, wives submit to your husband. Well, back up a verse because verse 21 is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We see over and over and over again that there are places in the text where God is moving us towards. Back towards that ideal, the way that he had set it up for male and female to be together. And ultimately, this is expressed in like the first egalitarian statement in the Roman world. Paul's statement from Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That Paul brings us all back to equality and love with one another, all because of Christ. But we have a tendency in the church to want to make sin pretty. We don't have to make sin pretty. We don't have to look back at patriarchal culture and patriarchal ways of living these things. And we don't have to say that that is proscriptive for all time. We say, no, that is descriptive of the time. It is descriptive of what is happening. But it is not that God is saying proscriptively for all time. You all have to continue to live like Abraham and Sarah or Isaac and Rebecca, or Rachel and Leah fighting over their husband with also their, right? I mean, this is not, God is not saying do this for all time. He is describing how he was at work in a culture and in a community that is set in a time and a place. But if you believe in the curse-reversing death of Jesus, then you are not obligated to look back and make our sin pretty we get to be partners with Jesus in reversing the curse. This is why we have all said, I want to follow Jesus because he takes the sin of the world away. He doesn't sit there and say, but you still have to live with this. So take the garbage out. We get to take it out. God does not ordain a gender hierarchy. That is not ordained in the Bible. God starts with Ezra Kenegdo. Sin brings in hierarchy. But we know that Jesus has an answer for sin. And, and good and well-intended loving Jesus people will feel the need to look at all of the passages that I list. This is a huge topic. And if you want to do garden to garden, then you can hear us talk just on all the difficulties of all the passages of Paul, of other texts. But you also hear us talk about, wow, what's going on in Luke 8? What's going on in this other passage of Luke where it says that Mary is sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus when that is a term for a disciple? How do we deal with all these? I mean, it's a broad, huge, huge conversation. Even when we look forward to the prophecies of what the world will be like, that the spirit will fall upon both your sons and your daughters when we start looking at revival. But we have people in our family of faith, and thank God we're all here together because we need each other to sort of wrestle with, but they try to make gender hierarchy pretty. Or they try to shame me, us, for not believing in it. Believing that it's God's plan. So um, this quote from the Gospel Coalition, from Kathy Keller. She's a complementarian. She's the wife of Tim Keller. Again, a wonderful and amazing people. She writes, Whether you're able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much you trust God's character. So the inference there is that I don't trust God's character because I happen to believe that God is moving us towards an egalitarian view of our text. And there's some, I hear, maybe you don't, I hear some shame in that. I hear a theological bias that says, if you don't believe this, then you don't really trust God. Now, I wouldn't say that to her. I would say, this is your practice. I Bless God, and this is mine. And I think we wrestle this out. But there is a tendency, because this is deep-seated, y'all, it's from Numbers 5 and before, it's from Genesis 3, it's part of our culture, it's part of the entire culture of human history in the world, that we, listen, just, my grandmother was born in 1912, when she was born, and she was not permitted to vote or wear pants. Now, she got, women got the right to vote in 1920, but... It was so bad, and I love this quote. It's like, our great-grandmas couldn't even vote or wear pants. Could you imagine living in a world where you couldn't even vote or wear pants? You couldn't even vote to wear pants because you couldn't (laughs) vote, right? This was the world that is not that long ago that we were still fighting for. And this is still present in a whole host of ways today where women in tech are being encouraged to use their initials rather than their full names so that they'll be treated equally online. And this does not surprise me because when I was growing up, my grandfather told me when I got my first checking account, I was 16 years old, and he said, don't use your initials on your checks because he grew up in a world where if a woman wrote a check, you wouldn't cash it. it couldn't be trusted. So he said, Danielle, don't don't write your name. And I didn't. My first checks, D.A. Parrish. I think they had kitties on them, so that probably threw people off. Some flowery print, something like that, but it had my (laughs) initials. And the ways in which this comes in all sorts of ways, I have had, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I have been over and over and over again the only woman in the room The only woman permitted to be in a setting. I take pulpits in churches and I watch people stand up and walk out presently in the Bay Area. I was a woman I reached out my hand to a woman at church. She was upset about something and she threw my hand back at me and insisted on only speaking to my husband. It It was about me, that she had an issue. Um, It is a—I can't even begin to tell you the challenges that have come being a woman in the church, even in the Bay Area, let alone being a female pastor— that as we are all growing up, our roles have been, great, let me give you your great teachings. You're going to grow up to be a wife. Well, what if you don't get married? Is there still a place for you in the church? You're going to grow up to be a mother. What if you don't have children? Is there still a place for you in the church? What's your role in the church, women, if you don't have children? If you aren't a wife, what's your role? What do you get to do? Well, the answer at Spark is you can preach, but that is not the answer all around. And these words, the ways that we speak about women, the way in which leaders in our community are spoken about. And this is the tame stuff. This is deep-seated, and we have decided for many years in the church to embrace it and to celebrate it rather than to call it sin and to say that it is not okay to treat half of God's creation made in his image this way anymore. But Jesus didn't die to make our sin and our garbage prettier. He died to take it away. I love this quote from this contemporary pastor of our time. Her name's Pastor Kelly Ladd Bishop, and she writes, The church should be leading the charge to tear down broken systems rather than watering them down, painting them with theological terms, and calling them godly. Taking an unjust system and making it nicer is foolishness. And what Numbers 5 does is it actually says, this system that you all culturally have been using is not okay, and God takes it the step that he can take it with the people. He goes as far as the people can go. If he were just to have said, hey, don't do that to women anymore, and let's start to go all the way back to the garden right away, that wouldn't have worked. It wasn't the culture that they were in. But as you look through the text, you start to see movement. So by the time we get to Paul, yes, he has specific words for specific communities and particular people in those communities. But he also has Phoebe, a deacon in the church. And he also has Eunia, Junia, an apostle, called an apostle in the Lord before Christ, before he was, before Paul was. We have Johanna, wife of Cusa, who is supporting Jesus' ministry out of her own means. We have Shoshana, Susanna. We have Miriam, and Miriam, and Miriam, and Miriam and Martha, and we have Miriam, Moses's sister, and we have many women in the church, many women in the Bible, in God's story that are telling us that we have a role here and that we're important. And so I want you guys to embrace the redemption of Christ and to begin to build his kingdom because Jesus is coming, so look busy. We don't have time for this anymore. We don't have time to watch 65 million girls in this world not have access to education. Because when girls are educated, they don't get married off young. They earn an income and they put it right back into their family and their community. They make significant changes. They don't become one of the many trafficked and abused women and children all around our world. They instead become leaders. They instead stand like Malala before the U.N., when you get an education. There are places where the gospel is calling us to be good news for all, for the whole kingdom in this world, and the church has lost its voice because we do not stand up for half of the population created in the very image of God. And you and I want to stand here in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, and say, hey, Jesus is the answer oh, but if you're a CEO, if you're a female CEO, if you're a woman, if you're trying to hold a high office or a local public office, or even if you just want to have some leadership skills, we're going to have to start demeaning you and calling you your voice shrill and calling you bossy. And we're going to have to start uh, questioning uh, your uh, private practices. And we're going to have to do a whole bunch of things that we would never, ever do for any of our male counterparts in this community. Now, as Kevin and I were talking about this, he said, oh, I'm so excited and I love our church so much. This is going be so great. Because I was showing him. I was like, I feel a little bit worried because for 20 years, I danced very differently. Somebody came up to me one Sunday and said, who gives you a right to call yourself pastor? I said, uh, the elders of the church who hired me and gave me the title. You could talk to them. She was angry, and I was working only with the children. But I had a name tag. So as I was preparing for this, I was just going to have a little bit of that residual, right? And, um, and I was talking to Kevin, like, do you think it's going to be okay? And what if I show the witch clip, right? Like, is it going to be all right? And he said, you know, the only thing is I just really wish we could preach it together. I wish I could be standing there with you while we preach it because, you know, it makes, it's so powerful when you also have, like, an ally, a man preaching it with you too. And I was like, I get it. I totally get it. It means that he's coming from the best spot, Okay. Right? He really is. He deeply is committed. Like the day that I was like, oh, yeah, baby, you are so good looking was when we were sitting across the table from people like, well, I just think it's a matter of different theological interpretation. He said, no, for me, this is a matter of justice because my wife is called and my daughter is called and my other daughter's called. And this is justice for me. I was like, yeah, baby, you're so awesome and hot. So I get it. He loves God and he is committed, deeply committed to this issue. And then I turned to him, I said, you realize that's part of the problem, right? And he was like, oh yeah. I'm like, because now you feel like we have to mansplain this to people in order for this, this to be legitimate is it has to be somebody without a quote-unquote dog in the fight that can come and present this issue so they can be more you know objective and talk about this without any passion behind it or at least not passion based upon the fact that they've been disqualified from a role for like 25 years you know all of those kinds of things and I was like see I'm gonna tell people that you did that and he's like okay yeah do it because it's so insidious it comes at us in all these different ways, even when we so deeply want to do the best, the belief that he and I both have that some people just won't listen until a man says it is part of the problem. So now you can't all say that when you leave here. You can't be like, well, if only, you know, after, coffee, after dinner and coffee tonight, you're like, well, I liked it, but it would have been better if she wasn't so shrill or passionate or she didn't have such a dog in the fight. She should have smiled more. She should have smiled less. no coughing. (coughs) So all of that, all that madness, all the madness that comes with the way in which we treat one another. Y'all, we do not have time for this. Jesus is coming. Look busy. And I'm going to change it. Jesus is here now building bits and pieces of this kingdom here on earth right now. Get busy. Be part of it. There is... Uh, Two more seconds, because I can talk about it forever. There have been several scholarly studies that follow revival in the church. And over and over and over again, the movements of revival always come when the men and the women, including the early church, are right alongside one another, working right alongside another. Revival comes. Then, guess what else shows up with Revival. Oh, we need a building, and we need some structure, and we need some organization. Oh, and there's money. And all of this comes with some movement, revival, And as soon as that comes, hierarchy comes in. Women are put here, and the revival trends down. The move in the Spirit of God trends down. And I'm not the author of this study. Stanley Grenz is, and you have blessed memory, and you can go and read it yourself. Be part of the movement of God. And for all the men in the room, we are thankful that you're our allies. We are, I'm deeply thankful that you show up. And this isn't just a place where only women are. Because honestly, I've never been super attracted to the women's ministry. So this is much more my scene. I've never, I love it. God bless you. That's great. I just didn't like the teapots and the flowers. But then I realized the only reason why that's the expression is because that's the only way that people, women have been permitted to express it. Once we get into discipleship and study and rock in the world, then every men and women, we're all coming together. So I submit all of this to you humbly and say thanks for joining me in my wilderness and in the wilderness of this beautiful place where God speaks in the wilderness and we can hear his voices. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for your many blessings. Thank you for this text and humbly before you, God, we are thankful for the ways in which you've created both male and female in your image, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us to wrestle with humility and with love this issue, and then also, Jesus, we pray that you just set us free to serve you and to serve your people in love. Amen.